I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Peter Diamandis, the founder of the XPRIZE Foundation, which leads public competitions to drive innovation. Peter launched the XPRIZE Foundation in 1994, and the first prize of $10 million was awarded in 2004 to the creators of the first piloted spacecraft called Spaceship One. The XPRIZE focuses on four areas, exploration, life sciences, energy, and global development. Peter is also the co-founder of Singularity University, which helps professionals in all fields better understand cutting-edge technologies. Peter is the author of the books Abundance and Bold, and he's a graduate of MIT and Harvard Medical School. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. I want to strip away all the technology and innovation for a moment and talk about Great Neck, New York. Okay. <laughs> yes, I went to uh, junior high school and high school there. Uh, and it was great. It was a great school, a lot of uh, amazingly smart people. And uh, it's really where I started becoming conscious as a scientist, entrepreneur, someone passionate about space and computers and all these techie things. Your father was an OBGYN. Yeah. Did your mother work? Yeah, my mom ran his office. Uh, she could well have been a physician as well, but uh, she basically ran his, his uh, office. And I grew up uh, in a medical family, a family where my parents were both born in a small island of Lesbos in Greece, uh, came over my mom when she was 10, my dad after medical school. And uh, they both had very humble beginnings. I heard stories about, you know, not having enough food to eat during the day and all of that. And I used to think that the journey that they took from their village in an island in Greece to, you know, New York physician was like this epic journey that would be the equivalent of me going to Mars. Speaking of Mars, you had this deep fascination with space in Great Neck, New York. Yeah. <laughs> what was the germ for this space interest? Well, I was born in the 60s. The germ was the Apollo program and Star Trek. Apollo was like, you know, you, you're, you become conscious during a decade where this epic, impossible, crazy journey is taking place, and it becomes the norm. You know, you assume, oh, yeah, of course, humanity does amazing things like this. It, it sort of calls its shot and goes to the moon and over and over and over again. And, and then all of a sudden, it's not anymore. And that disconnect uh, also fueled me. Were you uh, one of those tough kids? No, I was not at all. I was probably the kid picked on more than anything else. Um, I was a bit of a, of a geek. Uh, I was tough only in my perseverance. I think. Now, did you want to break out of Long Island, New York, or were you kind of a content adolescent wanting to perhaps have a career in medicine? I was expected to become a doctor. It was sort of the family business. But in my deepest heart of hearts, I wanted to be an astronaut. While you were in medical school, you founded the Space Generation Foundation, the International Space University. You headed a company called International Microspace. So it was very much top of mind while, by the way, you're a student at Harvard Medical School. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, <laughs> my passion was, was space. My day job was being a student. And um, the, the funny thing is, you know, I had my fourth year in medical school, I had two companies I was running. And I would go and work the night shift at Mass General Hospital from 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. And then I would go home and sleep for six hours and then go to the office from noon until 10 p.m. and would repeat, you know, over and over again. And it was sort of like I was committed to getting my degree. And when I finally did get it, barely, 
I you know, photocopied and sent a copy to my parents and then went off to go and work on my companies. Incidentally, my family, they're Harvard Med professors. They probably wouldn't be happy knowing that oh one of their God. students uh, was working another day job. Yeah, it's, I have a very, my dean back then, Dean Tostison, who's passed away since, I had a very cathartic moment with him where he called me in and basically said, listen, uh, all of your interns and residents are sort of telling me you're on the phone all the time, you're not paying attention, you're not doing your full abilities, what's going on here? And I had, and I fessed up, you know, almost in tears because he was, you know, this was like the meeting where I might get kicked out of medical school. And I said, uh, listen, my dream and passion is space. I want to do this. And he goes, do you want to graduate? I said, dearly. And he said, well, I'll make you a deal. If you promise you don't practice medicine and you pass part two of your boards, I'll let you graduate. He kept his promise. I kept mine. <laughs> hmm. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Pierre Diamandis, the founder of the XPRIZE, a foundation that drives innovation through competition with the hopes of improving the human experience. You got your, your medical degree and instead pursued this space route, yet you uh, had challenges on the venture capital front on uh, raising capital for your companies. One was, as I mentioned before, International Microspace, which was bringing loads into orbit, basically. Can you just describe that briefly? Uh, briefly, I had just started the International Space University. It was a huge success. And what was that? It, well, International Space University was a graduate-level program for studying all aspects of space, space business, medicine, engineering, life sciences, architecture, all those things. And it's still going today as one of the leading institutions for the graduate study of space. It's based in Strasbourg, France. It started out of MIT. And on the heels of that, it's like, what can I do next? And I said, you know, the launch vehicle world, you know, getting stuff into space is really expensive, really hard, and there's a marketplace there. So... Built a company with an amazing group, and we took a shot at building low-cost launch vehicles, what people know, you know, SpaceX and, and companies like that to be doing now. And uh, uh, it, we built it, we won a large contract, but we were never able to capitalize the company fully and never actually launched the vehicles and eventually sold it to a company, CTA, into Orbital Sciences. And Never flew. I was disappointed by that. Rather than chase money, you then s decided that you would make others chase money by building <laughs> this organization, the X Prize, where you're incentivizing people to innovate, being rewarded by you know million with millions of dollars. What was the germ for the gaming aspect of X Prize? Having just come off of this failed launch vehicle, and again fueled by this childhood passion of wanting to go into space. At the same time, I was trying to finish up my pilot's license, um, and a dear friend of mine, Greg Marinak, gave me a copy of Charles Lindbergh's biography, The Spirit of St. Louis, and he said, read this. This will be your motivation to finish your pilot's license. It's an amazing epic journey of this pilot. And I had no idea that in 1927, Lindbergh crossed the Atlantic to win a $25,000 prize. The story is amazing. Uh, this Frenchman, Raymond Ortegue, born under the Pyrenees Mountains in the late 1800s, comes to New York, works his way up from a busboy eventually to the owner of the Hotel Lafayette. During World War I, the airplane had made its debut in the world. And at this hotel, he catered to pilots from this World War I. Uh, I guess they called themselves aviators or aeronauts back then. He said, I wonder if aviation could connect my new home of New York, my old home of, of France, 
And so in 1919, he offers up a $25,000 prize for the first person to fly between New York and Paris, or Paris and New York. And that $25,000, as I'm reading in Lindbergh's autobiography, inspires nine different teams who spent $400,000 to win this $25,000 prize. And I said, and there was, a, there was just a moment in time where I wrote down in the margins, space prize. And I said, maybe this is how I could encourage the development of private launch vehicles that would carry me and my friends into space. And then not knowing who was going to fund it, who was my Ortigue, who was my Pulitzer, my Nobel, so to speak, I wrote the word X as a placeholder, and that became the X Prize. You announced the prize uh, before you had the capital, and the prize, uh, the first prize, was for this uh, piloted spacecraft. The funder, whom you eventually found, uh, is a female Iranian engineer, yeah. Anusha Ansari. Yeah. How did you come into contact with her? So you're correct. In, uh, in May of 1996, May 18th to be exact, we had raised about a half a million dollars of capital from St. Louis. And the fundraising was slow, and we took a gamble. And the gamble was we're going to announce the $10 million prize anyway with the notion that if we got enough publicity, we'd find the funder. I had two board members resign when we decided to do that. Um, We announced the prize under the arch in St. Louis, and I started on this journey to go and find backers. And I pitched Richard Richard Branson twice. I I pitched Fred Smith, uh, the CEO of FedEx, you know, lots of CEOs, 150 CEOs, philanthropists, and all of them said, you know, why isn't NASA doing this? Can anyone really build a privately funded spaceship and can they do it safely? Will someone die? I was told no over and over and over again, 150 times. And ultimately, one day I was reading a copy, I think it was Fortune magazine, and it had a listing of the wealthiest uh, 40 women under 40. And Anusha had just sold her company to telecom technologies for $1.3 billion. And she was listed in her bio. It said her dream was to fly on a suborbital flight into space. And I was just taken aback and I committed to tracking her down, which I did. She was vacationing in Hawaii. And that was her first meeting when she got back and they agreed to fund the prize. What was uh, your sense of self like during this time? You know, you you had trouble raising capital from your for-profit venture. You're receiving no's uh, relentlessly. Are you like, mm, you know what? <laughs> In my private moments, like looking at the mirror, what was that conversation like? It was hard. No question about it. You know, I had had a number of you know, early successes. But your raising capital was not your forte. Well, uh, I would say it probably is my forte more than ever now. But back then, I was working hard. I was raising capital for really hard stuff. But what I realized was this was the most important stuff in my life. And I would not want to do anything else. I always have viewed that space and doing these big, bold things was my guiding star. And when I would get depressed and I would sort of get, when things would get fuzzy and I'd finally get some sleep and re-energize, that guiding star was always there and it always drove me. Anoush was a turning point for you uh, in the capital coming in. What yeah. were other like fulcrum moments for you in addition? Around, I mean, there have been many of those over life. Meeting Anusha was definitely uh, a turning point. Of course, when, when Bert Rutan backed by Paul Allen, gave notice that they were going to compete, 
was important because, frankly, having a prize that no one competed for. Right? We had 26 teams around the world who spent on the order of $100 million. But having someone like Bert, a legend in the aviation business, decide that he was going to go into space and then pulled it off, that was extraordinary. And Paul Allen, founder of Microsoft. Yeah, uh, and Paul Allen, who had made his wealth in Microsoft, backing Bert and uh, spending $26 million to win the $10 million prize. It really, really credentialed the concept and allowed us on the heels of that to really give Bert the X Prize as a platform for doing extraordinary things. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Peter Diamandis, founder of the XPRIZE Foundation. We'll hear more from Peter coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Pierre Diamandis, the founder of the XPRIZE, a foundation that drives innovation through competition with the hopes of improving the human experience. These prizes are focused on bold yet achievable projects, ranging from space exploration to the human genome. Peter is author with Stephen Kotler of Abundance, Future is Better Than You Think, about technology innovation driving better standards of living for the world's growing population, and bold, the importance of technology disruption. I want to talk about the history of prizes sure, for happily. a moment. What are some prizes that we might not know about, you know, just historically that have fueled other innovations in time? Sure. Um, so the very first prize ever in recorded history that I studied is the Longitude Prize. In the year 1714, the British Admiralty put up a fortune for the first person to be able to tell the longitude. You could tell latitude by simply where the sun was rising uh, on the horizon. But to tell longitude was very difficult. And because uh, the early navigators could not tell longitude accurately, the Navy was losing thousands and thousands of their men on the rocks as they'd come back to port. And they thought an astronomer was going to figure it out. So the longitude board, the judging body, was filled with astronomers. And it turned out to be John Harrison, a watchmaker, a tinkerer, who came up with a very accurate clock on the highly humid rocking seas that ultimately won the prize, much this chagrin of the astronomers. Uh, there was in the 1840s when Napoleon was marching on Russia uh, and losing his men from malnutrition because the supply line was so long, he offered up a prize for, uh, for food preservation. And it was won by Nicholas Appert, who came up with uh, canning food. Mm -hmm. And he was a French candy maker. And um, a lot of early aviation prizes, put up by the media, actually. The newspapers uh, put up a lot of these, the Daily Mail and such, because they wanted to create good news stories and heroes. And incidentally, uh, Netflix, bringing it back to, to uh, modern times in 2009, had a $1 million prize to find the best algorithm to help them predict what people's favorite movies would be. Yeah. Do you think that was on the heels of the X Prize? Oh, yeah. I know the guys who ran it, and uh, and they do say, and there's been a multitude of prizes. I think the Ansari X Prize reinvigorated the interest in prizes, and there have been prizes that NASA now uses, that DARPA uses, other parts of the government. And in fact, we recently launched a platform called Hero X, uh, a spin out of XPRIZE. And this is a platform where anyone, a company, a CEO, an entrepreneur, a community can actually have the community help them design a prize, develop a prize, fund a prize, and launch a prize. 
And because the XPRIZE Foundation, we only launch two or three prizes a year, and these are typically five, $10 million prizes, HeroX becomes a platform we could launch a $50,000 prize. We're talking about space innovation, um, yet your interest also lies uh, in the self. You have interest in human longevity. You've had a project with Craig Venter, uh, who decoded the human genome. And it's interesting because when we talk about space, it's an area that we all can talk about comfortably, whereas the self and wanting to stay younger is kind of highly personal. When you look in the mirror, you're like, hmm. I thought I was impervious to growing old, but it's happened, you know? And those are such (laughs) deeply personal reactions. And it's just striking how, on the face of it, two very diametrically opposed things happen to have a lot of commonality in the people who push push the innovations forward in those fields. Like Martine Rothblatt, for example, she's an innovator focused on space and satellites, yet she's also focused on life extension and the self. And I'm wondering, is there a coincidence in that parallel? Sure. And I know Martine for 30 years. She's a dear friend and a brilliant, brilliant human. Uh, There is the following commonality. As entrepreneurs become more and more enabled to do bigger and bolder things, and this is the premise of my book, Bold, there are tools that allow us to do things that only the largest governments and corporations could do before. And we, as individuals, are far more risk-takers than anybody else. And when you think about what has driven humanity forever uh, and what the epic journeys of the early European settlers talked about, you know, what were the Europeans coming to the New World looking for? Gold and for uh, the fountain of youth. The space exploration element is our continuation of our epic journey. It is the journey looking for new lands, for new resources. My company, Planetary Resources, uh, is a company backed by a group of amazing investors building spacecraft to go out to near-Earth asteroids to look for fuels and precious materials. The company we recently announced, Human Longevity, uh, with Craig Venter and Bob Hariri, is a company that is focused on extending the healthy human lifespan. How do you add 10, 20, 30, you know, a target of 40 years on a human lifespan? People who want to think bigger and bigger, this is where you target. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Pierre Diamandis, the founder of the XPRIZE, a foundation that drives innovation through competition with the hopes of improving the human experience. These prizes are focused on bold yet achievable projects, ranging from space exploration to the human genome. Peter is author with Stephen Kotler of Abundance, Future is Better Than You Think, about technology innovation driving better standards of living for the world's growing population, and bold, the importance of technology disruption. I want to talk about some some other prizes in addition to to the first, one of which is the Archon Genomics Prize, uh, which was finding the first team to rapidly uh, sequence 100 whole human genomes using centenarians. Mm -hmm. Why was that stopped, by the way? So we launched that prize, and then we made a choice to, to shut it down. It's the first prize we ever shut down. And we made the choice because... It turned out that, you know, we want to use prizes as a means to incentivize breakthroughs and innovation. Very rapidly after we announced it, that market started moving completely independent of the prize. The rate of genome sequencing price performance was going five times faster than Moore's Law. And it just seemed like that was not likely to be a prize that was going to change the system. 
It was not audacious enough, or well, it was audacious enough, enough when it, it was audacious enough when it was first uh, proposed, but it turned out not to be needed. Our goal is to use prizes to incentivize new investments, new behaviors, new risk taking to drive things that are stuck, and it turned out that was not a field that was stuck. Another example of a prize is the Qualcomm Tricorder uh, X Prize, which yeah. is creating non-invasive health diagnostic devices, basically detecting mono and HIV and osteoporosis. Are they basically just packs that you have that you could bring into the developing world, or no? So the goal here is, and again, going back to childhood you know, experiences and vision of Star Trek, uh, I was having lunch with Paul Jacobs, who's now the chairman of Qualcomm. You were talking about X-Prizes, and I said, one of the X-Prizes I'd love to do is to bring the Star Trek tricorder to life. That device that, you know, that Bones, that Dr. McCoy or Spock used to use to diagnose somebody, you'd wave it over them and say, Jim, he's an alien, you know, and he'd be able to tell what's going on. And uh, Paul said, I love it. I would love to do that. And so very rapidly, uh, we defined what that is, and uh, Qualcomm put up $20 million, 10 for its purse, 10 for the operations and this was a is an X Prize that asked teams to build a handheld mobile device, and it's not for a doctor or for a nurse. It's from or a mom and dad at two o'clock in the morning when your kid is sick, and you want to know what's going on. And it's a device that is about self-diagnostics, and this is about a user interface that allows you to become the CEO of your own health. You are the enabler for these innovations in a way. You, you're, I don't want to call you the Tom Sawyer, <laughs> getting others to do work for you. Have you been called that before? <laughs> no, not yet. What, don't, don't tell anybody. What do you enjoy building yourself? I enjoy building companies and organizations. I mean, the last two that I have been working on is Human Longevity, where I'm the co-founder and vice chairman, and we're building out the world's largest genome sequencing facility on the planet. Uh, and our goal is to add 30 to 40 healthy years in a person's lifespan. That's a big deal. The other company which I spend a lot of time on and I'm passionate about is uh, Planetary Resources. You know, everything we hold of value on Earth, metals, minerals, energy, real estate, is a crumb in a supermarket filled with resources. And so our job is we're building the spacecraft that can go out to, to uh, prospect, to image, to claim, to effectively uh, you know, eventually gain ownership of these these resources that then allow us to uplift all of humanity because we should not be a resource-limited species. Does all this work in the kind of extraterrestrial or, or uh, space make you sometimes just feel uber tiny, like such that, you know what, like ultimately I'm going to die and it's, it's all okay? Yeah. You know well, I mean? like, the, the comment of I'm going to die and it's all okay has not crossed my mind recently. Um, I prefer to extend human life than, uh, than succumb to it. You know, I still have hopes for my generation to be one of the first generations that has the option to live long enough to live forever. You're older than I, but we're kind of the same generation. We might be that Moses who is looking at the promised land, but not actually ever arriving. I'm working really hard to arrive there, and I will not give up. Uh, the, you know, the other side of space flight is a different realization. I look at it differently, which is I think millions of years from now, hundreds of thousands of years from now, when we look back in time, whatever we've evolved to, 
uh, it'll be these next few decades that the human race has moved off the planet irreversibly. And we're at that cusp. You know, last time this happened is when the lungfish moved out of the oceans onto the land. And, and it's a very magical time to be alive. We really are during a period of massive transformation of what it is to be human. And we're going to be defining that. Don't you think every generation feels that they're on the cusp of just great explosive innovation? Uh, probably. I think that the realization is the rate of innovation continues to increase. And so there is, as my friend Ray Kurzweil calls, a singularity at which the point of change is so fast, it's not predictable. You know, this is where AI and 3D printing and robotics and all of these things are transforming our world at such a rate that you can't really predict what you're going to have next month, let alone next year. We're in a process of merging with technology. Uh, and people don't realize that, right? You outsource your memory for telephone numbers to Outlook. You outsource your spelling to Microsoft Word. And we're beginning to incorporate technology into our bodies. Uh, we, we communicate across the globe by using technology, we fly at, at you know, near supersonic speeds using technology. And I think we're going to start to uh, begin to plug technology in as we investigate virtual worlds and, uh, and AI and human-machine interfaces. You know, it's not 50 years from now. I'm talking about this decade. We, we talk about AI, artificial intelligence, and 3D printing, and virtual worlds. And you're not of this camp, but others are of the camp where they just say, don't want it. Like I don't need a virtual world in which them. you know I'm I'm gonna beam a robot to put me into the Philippines for five minutes and come back out. And for instance, when I was a little girl, I remember when roll-up windows in my car turned into like button windows. And of course, I caught, thought it was the coolest thing. But why doesn't a roll-up window work? You know what I'm talking about? So the challenge is people who romanticize the past uh, and who say I don't need that go and take away their email, their cell phone, their use of a car, an airplane, and they'll scream. Very few of our listeners here actually grow their own food, milk their own cows, you know, go slaughter their own pigs, which is what two-thirds of Americans did 150 years ago. But it's through technology that we increase the standards of living that, you know, what's made us better as a species over the last 100 years isn't smarter politicians. We haven't gotten smarter. It's been the impact of technology. My friend Steven Pinker at Harvard wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, in which he shows us we're living during the most peaceful time ever in human history. In my second issue of Abundance, I have all these 80 charts in the back, and there's actually one chart which is shows the more technologically enabled a society is, the happier it is. You're the co-author with Stephen Kotler of two books, most recently of Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth, and Impact the World. Can you, can you describe it? So Abundance was a book that, you know, topped the New York Times list for nine weeks. And it's a book of where the world is going to be in 20 or 30 years. But I wanted to write a book for entrepreneurs of how you get us there. And Bold is a, a how-to manual. It's sort of a roadmap uh, built into three sections. The first is the notion that entrepreneurs today have access to extraordinary technology, it's how you can use 3D printing, AI, infinite computing, synthetic biology, these tools that enable you as an individual, I don't care if you're in high school or college, if you've never done techie things before, these are tools that each of us have. And I give examples of people with no background using these tools to go and build 
companies. The second part of the book is about bold thinking, and I interview and do extensive research on Elon Musk and Larry Page and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and how you think at scale. And it's the realization that the majority of the world is linear and they think 10% bigger. A great year is when your revenue or your products or services or your business grows 10%. And the whole notion is that is so last decade that today you need to be able to think 10 times bigger, not 10% bigger. The third part of the book is these bold tools. Crowdfunding is enabling $15 billion of capital this year. Crowdsourcing, uh, the notion that in this hyper-connected world, there are billions of people you can connect with. If you want information on quantum physics or genome sequencing, there are experts out there you can buy by the hour to help you in your business. Even companies like Google, without perhaps uh, making it explicit, do a form of crowdsourcing when they put out betas and they have the, the public tweak and perfect whatever innovation is happening, which is very different from, let's say, Apple, which is very like the hen has laid its egg and yes, here it is. exactly. Very open source versus closed. Do you see any uh, parallels with a natural world uh, where yeah, I mean, crowdsourcing? Listen, we are we live in a world of Darwinism, where we are constantly taking experiments. Nature is taking trillions of experiments per year. Every time a small genetic mutation occurs, it's an experiment. We are, as humans, the peak of that evolutionary branch, at least for for intelligence, and it's the natural way of of doing things. What might I not know about you? Uh, well, I mean, I don't, I'm, a, I'm a father of three-and-a-half-year-old twin boys. I have a pilot's license. I am traveling way too much uh, all the time. What has surprised you about fatherhood? That how much I care about it, uh, how much I enjoy it, and uh, uh, the challenge of and the myth of living a balanced life. Uh, and it's also how how much it's nature versus nurture. I know my child children's personality from like the day they were born uh, to today. The fundamental cornerstones haven't changed, and so it's all coded in the genome. My friend Craig Venter, who's my co-founder in Human Longevity, talks about. Uh, how much we underappreciate how much your genome codes for how you look, the sound of your voice, the structures of your brain, the, your memory, your skills, your personality, all of these things. So we're going to start to unlock in ways that we haven't even considered yet from your sequence who you are in society. Are you married? I am. Do you meditate? Not yet, but man, do I need it. <sighs> On the non-technology front, yeah. aside from being like with your children, yes. what, what do, do you I do? enjoy? Uh, I love flying. I mean, actually, the closest I come to meditating is when I'm you know, flying an airplane and I'm focused on one thing until the autopilot, autopilot goes on, then I focus on my email. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. My guest has been Peter Diamandis. Coming up, we'll meet Cause Marte, founder of Conbody, an exercise program that Cause developed while he was in prison for selling drugs. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.
I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Cause Marte, founder of Conbody, an exercise program that Cause developed while he was in prison for selling drugs. From working out in his 9x6 prison cell, he lost 70 pounds in six months. Conbody is located on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and also offers classes online so you can do prison-style workouts from the solitary confinement of your own home. Cause started Conbody in 2014 after he was released from prison. Welcome. Thank you. I want to talk about life on the Lower East Side, given that that's all linked to what you're doing now. Yes. Your parents are from the Dominican Republic. Yeah. You were born here. What was it like in the uh, the late 80s, early 90s? Okay. And you were born in 1985. Yeah. So in the, growing up in that neighborhood in the Lower East Side, it was it was drugs everywhere. I mean, I remember seeing uh, dope lines, heroin lines, we call them, where people would line up to buy heroin down the block, and there would be lines of like 20 to 50 people. What kind of student were you in school? I was, I was a pretty good student. I was bilingual. I was supposed to be skipped in the third grade, and my mom didn't allow it. I did really, really well in, in elementary school. Middle school was a different story. Your parents uh, were both hardworking uh, yeah. and did not do drugs. No. What is what did your mom do when you were younger? Uh, when I was younger, my mom worked at a, a factory on Bleecker Street, and she was like sewing little T-shirts and shorts and. Uh, she used to like babysit me under her sewing machine. I remember being a calm kid and just like sitting there and just like playing with my fingers. There was no video games. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I couldn't afford a Game Boy. <laughs> and the sound of the machines, do you remember the yes, sound? Yes, I, de- I definitely remember. I was watching a guy that was like ironing all the all the clothes items and it was just one guy that was working there and there was just a whole bunch of ladies like sewing and he would be like steaming everything like tsh, you know tsh. and how about your dad he worked as a chef at Tavern of the Green and then started working in bodegas um, that was actually my first job I worked at a bodega that he ran in front of my building it was the build downstairs so I had to wake up in the morning and like open up the store and clean mm-hmm. it up and and I started stealing cigarettes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then one thing led to another. Cigarettes exactly. led to to marijuana uh, at yep. age 12. At age 11, you had your first introduction to pot. Did your parents know that you were starting to dabble in this? They already knew I was going to go down that route. And because of all my cousins, on the, we lived in the same floor on 42 Renton Street. Like, my whole family was there. And we would, like, smoke cigarettes in the hallway and, like, you know, throw water balloons off the roof and hang. Our, our playpen was the fire skate. They found weed mm-hmm. when I was 12, and mm-hmm. and they would tell me, you know, smoke in the building, don't go outside and smoke, if, mm-hmm. you know, trying to protect me from being arrested. And then you turned to selling drugs. What was driving you to, to start this? Uh, I, I wanted it. I wanted things, and I was hungry. Um, I was always looking to make money as a kid. I would collect baseball cards, sell them. I would, you know, go down the up and down the stairs with a black garbage bag and, and take all the cans from the neighbors and exchange them to, in the bodega. Uh, and that would be, like, my lunch money. But I was just hungry. And, and everybody that was around me had everything, and I wanted that. So fast forward a few years, by the age of 19, you had become kind of a local kingpin. Is that overstating it? Uh, not local. It was more of a, like a tri-state, more regional. 
uh, thing, uh, but it was it was definitely a, a, a delivery service. So I, I changed the way we sell drugs uh, in the Lower East Side. So I had everybody wear suits and ties, and I made 10,000 business cards, and when the neighborhood started really gentrifying, I gave it out to like all these like young hipsters, and it was a 24-hour delivery service, and I had over 20 people working for me at that time. And you were selling now to, to people who were like, Analysts at Goldman Sachs, or exactly, or, or, right? I mean, stockbrokers, judges, lawyers, doctors—you uh, name it. And you had seven cell phones at one point. Yeah, we had seven cell phones because each phone only held fifteen hundred numbers, uh, and it was—it got so overwhelming that I started getting like dispatchers, and we and I had like easel easel boards where. They were right, like, who's coming in, what's going out, how many people, like, keeping stats. We had a marble notebook, like, old-school bookkeeping style. It was pretty crazy. By the way, just going back uh, to your parents, you also have uh, two sisters and a brother. Yeah. Now, your sisters are ambitious. One uh, was a managing director at Goldman Sachs. Yeah. Uh, she now lives in London, and the other is an underwriter for an insurance company. Yeah. And your brother, too, uh, running for city council in District 65 of Manhattan. Yeah. We're hustlers. Yeah. We're, we're, we're trying to take over. We all did well in school. Both my sisters like Valley Victorians and my brother as well. So you had a turning point. Uh, you were age 23 and you were caught by the federal authorities. Talk to me about your psychological state at that time. Like how did, I, need I ask how you felt about going to jail for seven years? Uh, I was happy. How come? Because uh, it was only seven years. It was my third felony. I was in and out of jail since I was 13. Uh, one in 10 times I was supposed to be doing life. And your parents, do you remember how it was affecting your family? I mean, they were really affected. And uh, and I had a son, I have a son. I have a nine-year-old son. And um, I went in when he was two years old and, and came out when he was uh, six. Seeing that transition with him, and, and it, was, it, was, it was sad. You ended up only serving four years, ultimately. How come? Uh, due to a program called Shock. It's a military-style program boot camp type of deal. Uh, it's a six-month intense hands-on program that you have to work out like two hours a day, strict, you get up, you got you got to make your bed, brush your teeth, shave, and get dressed in eight minutes, uh, a minute and a half showers. Um, like, it's crazy intense. That seems helpful. <laughs> not, not helpful in a way uh, of what I feel like is abusive, but... I did that program three times. So what was the catalyst for your getting into shape? I got big and started eating unhealthy, and I was uh, my cholesterol levels were really bad. But I didn't find this out until I went to the doctor in prison in 2009. And they told me that I, my cholesterol levels were so high that I could die within five years. Um, I was sentenced to seven years, and I did the math, and I said, I'm not going to die in this prison cell. And I, I began working out, and I lost 70 pounds in six months and then helped over 20 inmates lose over 1,000 pounds combined. Now, what did you do in that prison cell that caused you to lose 70 pounds in six months? So I took those techniques that I learned from sh the shock program in 0506, and I, I began using them in SL. And then I came up with new creative moves because I was there by myself and I was bored, and I just did stuff. <laughs> like what? 
Uh, there's one exercise called, I call it up and down. It's like where you sit down on the ground and you get back up. You sit down on the ground and you get back up. It's a natural movement, but uh, people don't really see the effects. It's, like you, it's really hard to sit down and get back up um, at a high repetitive amount of times, a couple hundred times. What else? So I did like push-ups, dips off of my side of my bed. I, I held my mattress and, and did step-ups on the side with the bed, shoulder presses with my pillow, and just getting creative because you have nothing to do and you was bored. Your motivation was your own physical health because you had been told that you might yeah. die in five years. And also there's a culture of exercise a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, why? Uh, because you have the time to do it, and a lot of guys in the prison yard, they're like, yeah, I'm going to get out because I'm going to get these girls. You, you don't want to go in there and just waste your time and like be fat and lazy and then come out and look in the same and you won't be able to find a girl. <laughs> Even though your prison sentence was shortened from seven years to four years, you spent a month in solitary confinement because you had an altercation with a, a guard? Yes. And then you kind of had an epiphany moment while you were there. Yeah. But why were you there? Why was I there? I, I, I was uh, called down to the medical un unit. This officer places me on the wall to search me. He starts searching me and manhandling me in the wrong ways. Uh, I moved a little bit. He smacked me in the back of my head really hard, and which made me drop down to the ground. And uh, I, I stood up and I turned around on him. Ten officers, about a dozen officers, came to the scene. They beat the crap out of me. They they threw me in solitary. Uh, I I ended up doing an extra year because of that situation. But isn't this illegal? Like you know, for for doing what? You didn't do anything. When I got to that cell, I was like banging my head in the wall because I was like, I'm coming home. I told my son that I was coming home in two months, and I couldn't see I couldn't see my son and. And and I was I was devastated because I was like I didn't do anything wrong. You wrote a, a letter to your family. Yeah, so out of, out of like desperation, I, I sat down at my this little desk that you have in your cell, and um, I began writing a, a letter asking for help. I enclosed this letter, and when I enclosed it, I, I realized I didn't have a stamp to send it out with. Uh, a couple of days later, my sister writes me. She tells me to read Psalm 91 from the Bible. All I had in my cell was a Bible that I never picked up. And as soon as I started reading it, a stamp fell out of my Bible. And it was a stamp that I needed to send out this letter with. Right in that instant moment, or that stupidity that I, would, I used to think, all went out the door. I felt like I was affecting so many people. Mm -hmm. And I was creating this whole web of destruction and I needed to you know, create a web of positivity. I felt like this was my, my calling. Uh, my whole idea was like starting a, a prison-style boot camp, doing training the same way we trained in the prison yard, mm -hmm. um, and then hiring formerly incarcerated people to teach the fitness classes. So you get out of prison, uh, but you don't start Con Body right away. Uh, you tried to find other jobs uh, yep. prior. Um, what were some of those jobs that you had? Uh, so... I just kept applying for jobs. Um, I kept getting the, the door slammed in my face. Eventually, I found a job off the books. Uh, my uncle works at this hotel, and I was just scrubbing toilets there. I was grateful. I was not making a lot of money, uh, but I was I was out. 
and I could eat, you know, and I could sleep and I could like use the bathroom whenever I want to, you know. While you were working with your uncle at this hotel and uh, you were exercising in the park. Yeah, I was working out by myself and I I was going up to random people and I did I used the same marketing t- tactics that I used while I was selling drugs. I made business cards and I started going up to girls with yoga pants. I tell them like I see that you work out, you know, you should come work out with me. I, I run Combody as a as a prison style boot camp derived from my prison experience where I lost seventy pounds in six months in a prison cell and then I helped over twenty inmates who was over a thousand pounds combined. I could get you that, excuse my language, that prison body you've always desired. <laughs> and did they come or were they kind of scared off by that? Uh, some some just laughed out of a thousand, maybe like five or ten, you know, so it took a, it took a while. Wasn't there some story you were working out and some guy passed you and said, can I join? And you said, yeah, yeah for $200. I was doing pull-up bar training in the morning and I had a group of about like six, seven people out there. He comes like running towards the side and jumps on this pull-up bar that I made. There's no pull-up bar in the park. I took this like broken piece pipe off uh, the ground and stuck it between fences and was doing pull-up bar training there. And when he jumped on it, I was like, yo, that's my bar. You have to pay me for that. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I don't mean to disrespect. Then I told him, like, do you want to join? And um, he was like, how much is it? And I was like, "Uh, I didn't really have like a pricing you know, strategy or whatever, and I I told him uh, $200, and we went to the ATM. I, I, like, quickly closed the deal. So how did it become more, should I say, institutionalized? Yeah. Uh, How did it go from stalking people in the park to an actual thing? It was getting cold, and I needed a place to start doing it inside, so I, I started renting out a studio, and then it got really overcrowded. People, the word of mouth was just getting out there. I needed help with other people, and the people that helped me were like formerly incarcerated people that I know, and they uh, and I got them involved quickly. You won a business plan competition. How did you team up with who was it? I won a business plan competition through the five ventures. So the five ventures that believes that illegal entrepreneurs can become legal entrepreneurs. Uh, and they have like these Shark Tank competitions. I won like ten grand from them, and that's the uh, capital that I use to start up this company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started winning multiple competitions. Uh, I joined this like YPO uh, competition that Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank was like actually hosting, and I won that. And then I won and started raising more money, um, Kickstarters and all this other stuff. I've heard you say that you transferred your hustle. You hustled to sell drugs, and then where had you come up with that term? I like it. Well, transform your hustle. That's like that. That's like the five ventures like tagline. Transform your hustle. Yeah. How did selling drugs kind of help you with what you're doing now? Definitely made me not scared to ask. Going up to random people and just like stopping them and pitching them and like continuously doing it was something that I did. I think the only difference is that you have to pay taxes. <laughs> was there a one person or one like magazine piece that really helped to escalate Conbody? Were there any turning points? There was a, a small NPR piece that was done like in 2014 
when when I first like started in the studios and people started hearing hitting me up out of nowhere. From there, a TED Talk, and from there, like uh, just a whole bunch of magazines and articles started spiraling. We've been featured in over two hundred publications now. What is uh, the nature of your clients? Uh, so it's usually like 25 to 35-year-old young professional woman. We use no equipment, and I feel like equipment really intimidates uh, females sometimes, and that's what they tell me. Also, it's 30-minute <laughs> classes. That helps. Yes, 30-minute classes that you will, ta- you will be taking to Jessica. Uh, if you're my teacher, I'll do yes. it. In addition to having this studio on the Lower East Side, you're now reaching people in other cities and countries um, because yes. you have an online platform um, yeah. where you're streaming workouts. What's an example of some people taking these online classes? Where are they living? So I have people from like everywhere, like, like Middle America, moms, kids, college students. We got people from Korea, China, Hong Kong, Japan, South Africa. A lot of people from like London, Italy, France, uh, people from Turkey. But it's it's just been like re-catching on with like the whole world. Was there one or two people that were so helpful to you in getting this off the ground? Oh, uh, yeah, there's uh, been a lot of people, especially my ex-girlfriend, Jennifer Shaw. She's like really intelligent and taught me a lot about branding, writing emails and re constructing the the business um, properly. Is she the mother of your son? No. I actually met this girlfriend on Tinder when I came home. Do you exercise every day? I don't exercise every single day, but I um, I really exercise frequently, uh, at least like four to five times a week. I just ran the Manhattan Bridge before I got here. And what'd you, what'd you eat? I corned beef hash, home fries, and uh, boiled eggs from Cup and Saucer on Canal and Eldridge. You got a huge <laughs> smile on your face. It's my favorite spot. You know, John and Nick, they've been there since I was born. When you walk the streets of the Lower East Side now versus, uh, you know, the late 1980s, 90s, how do you feel walking the same streets and having it look? Well, how would you define how it looks and feels? Back in the day, it was more of a community and more dangerous. Now it's like less of a community, but safer. So no heroin lines? No. Be Coffee now. and uh, there's no more kids. There's like poodles, you know. I remember as a kid running in the park at late night of the hours at five, six years old, and somebody's watching me in the street and nobody cared. I miss summers where I was opening up the fire hydrant and like, you know, cleaning cars and making a few dollars and uh, just still having fun on the streets, you know. Nobody hangs around in corners anymore. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been Cause Marte, founder of Conbody. If you would like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. Scratch.